0: Take your copy of God's Word and and turn with me to Philippians 4 this morning. Philippians chapter 4. Many, many people pursue contentment. They'll pursue and chase happiness. They They may not label it contentment, but that's what they are looking for. They might be pursuing happiness or fulfillment, they might say, or Many, many people pursuing contentment all their lives and get to, the end of the, get to the end of their lives and have not found it, have not found contentment. Benjamin Franklin said, content makes poor men rich, discontent makes rich men poor. How true. Someone also once said, a contented man is one who enjoys The scenery along the detours. (laughs) Have you ever gotten to a detour in the road and um, or made a wrong turn? I did that this week. Dryer broke down and I was looking for a part. And I was trying to get there before five o'clock. And I took a wrong turn. (laughs) I was like, oh, doggone it. I'm looking at my watch and I'm not going to make it before they lock the door. You ever do that? Or you get to a detour, and you've cut yourself short on time as it is, and the detour takes you even longer. The pursuit of contentment can be like that, detour after detour, if you don't figure out the right way to pursue contentment. And God's Word is all about giving us the right way, God's way. Last Sunday, we began considering the first part of wisdom that leads to true contentment. And we're being shown it in the ministry, in the life example, and in the words of Paul. In fact, God moved Paul to write these words. And so you might look at what Paul's writing is like, wow, how self-centered is this guy to be talking about his own life? But God moved Paul to write this using his own life as an example, and I'm grateful to God for the examples he gives us to follow in his word. Because you can look around at godly examples in this life, and I hope that there are many, but often, often people are frail and fickle, and we make, we make sinful choices at times, and so we're not always the best examples, but God's examples that he gives us in his word are wonderful And Paul is a wonderful example. God moved Paul to write here in these closing verses of Philippians 4, a powerful testimony of contentment. The first part of wisdom we saw last week is rejoicing and resting in the Lord. Are you rejoicing in the Lord? Are you resting in what He gives you or even in what He withholds? Are you rejoicing and resting in the Lord? That can only be true of you if you're growing in your trust of God. If you are deepening your roots in the truth of God's Word, if you are resting in the providence of God and in the sufficiency of God's provision, are you Rejoicing and resting in the Lord. You need to grow in your trust of the Lord for that to be true of you. When you daily put your trust in the Lord and have confidence in God, you're going to begin to learn how to rejoice in the Lord always, as we hear Paul say in verse 4 and last week in verse 10, that he was rejoicing in the Lord greatly. He was rejoicing in the Lord And you'll begin learning how to rest in the Lord's provision, as we saw Paul doing in verse 10 last week. Today we look at verse 11. We're moving into verse 11, where we find another part of wisdom that leads believers in Jesus to live a life of contentment. We'll see here in verse 11 more fully what we began to see in verse 10, that Paul is content with God's provision. He is content with what God provides. Look at verse 11 with me in your copy of God's Word. Follow along as I read from the English Standard Version, verse 11. Not, says Paul, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Verse 11 sums up, the big idea of what we find in Paul's closing remarks here to the Philippian believers, all the way from verse 10, all the way to the closing of chapter 4. This is the big idea of this section of this passage. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned whatever situation I am, in whatever situation I am, to be content. And my hope and prayer for us and for you is that by the time we finish this series of studies in chapter 4, that you'll be able to say with Paul, I have learned, or at least say with Paul, I am learning, I am learning that in whatever situation I am, to be content. Are you courageous enough to ask God to help you to learn to be content? It's kind of a risky prayer. God, help me to learn to be content. Sometimes when we think that way, we're afraid because we think maybe God will take something from me that I really like or really want so that He will teach me to be content. And you need to be courageous and trust that God's ways are perfect. And what God withholds, you do not need. And what He gives is what you need. And I want you to see that this is this isn't the only place that we find this this teaching, this truth, this charge to believers to learn to be content. This isn't the only place we find this in God's word. In fact, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. The Bible makes a strong case for all believers in Jesus to learn contentment. Look at 1 Timothy 6, beginning with verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing... With these, we will be content. So the word, and this word, in the word, is for you, believer in Jesus. If you're a believer in Jesus, this is for you to learn to be content with what you have, with where you are. There's also a warning to people who lack contentment that follows. Keep looking at that passage uh, Continue with verse 9 here in 1 Timothy 6. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils... It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Side note, verse 10 does not say that money is the root of all kinds of evil. It says the love of money. Right? Right? So there is a very real danger for you if you ignore the teaching of the Bible and refuse to learn contentment. We can also hear this in Hebrews 13. Listen to Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. Keep, keep your life. This is deliberate. You're learning to be content. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Do you hear this, believer? God is telling you, I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. Verse 6, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And we hear this in Luke chapter 12 and verse 15. And he said to them, Take care. Again, this is being deliberate with your life. Take care and be on your guard, be deliberate about this believer, against all what? Covetousness. In other words, discontentment. Take care, says Luke twelve fifteen. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life is does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Do you hear this? The fullness of life is not found in the fullness of things, in the gathering of more stuff. I once stood beside a man going through a a line for dinner at a church carrion. And I was grieved uh, by, uh, I was grateful that he was in church, but I was grieved that he was a very unhappy person. And I was trying to encourage him, and in my foolishness, as he talked about all the things that he had been trying to repair at home that week, and it's like I had, All the stuff I have, it just drives me crazy. I've got to fix this, and I've got to fix that. and, And in my foolishness, I just said, have you ever thought about getting rid of some things? And he didn't like that. Might have been the right thing to say, but maybe not the right time. You struggle with this? I do. I just want more stuff. When we moved, we got rid of so much stuff because I didn't want to move it. That's right. <laughs> and some of my adult children were like, can I have that? And it's like, take it. Don't ever bring it back to my house, but take it. I don't want it anymore. It's amazing what moving will do to clarify your clarify your desires but but i I have a problem now i have this full basement i mean it's not full yet but it's a full basement under the house right that says hey come and fill me up with stuff so you have to discipline yourself it's you, you you can hear it in these passages hebrews 13 5 keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. There's some deliberate action taking place. Believer, are you willing to be deliberate about being content? Luke twelve fifteen. take care. Be on your guard against covetousness. Be deliberate. And Proverbs 17, 1 says this, Better is a dry morsel with quiet. That's contentment. Better a dry morsel with quiet. Than a house full of feasting with strife. That's discontentment. The Bible is clear. The Bible, again and again, is is very clear. Contentment cannot be found in the pursuit of more, contentment cannot be found in the accumulation of more, more things, more accomplishments. More status. More respect. What is it you want? What is it that drives you? Contentment cannot be found in the accumulation of stuff and things or in accomplishments. You know what it is that hinders our contentment? There are barriers to contentment, as we heard in a few of the passages of Scripture I just read. So, I want you to think about this. I want you to consider the problem. What's the problem at heart? What's the root of the problem? The problem lies in what we see as our needs. I, four letter word, right? I need this. I need that. Doesn't God know I need this? The problem lies in what we see as our needs. We are constantly being conditioned, a kind word for saying brainwashed, into believing that every whim and every desire is a must have need. I kind of want that. I need that. It turns into a need. Where does that idea come from that everything you see and want is a need? <laughs> it's on full display all around you in the world that you live in. Why is this? Why is it all around us? Why are we inundated with our <laughs> brainwashing of the needs that we have or we don't really have but we think we have these needs why is it it's because the world at large believes there's no god and you say how did you get there (laughs) i'll say it again the world around us believes there is no god how can i say that the bible tells us that this is what the world believes that there is no God who will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus, as we hear Paul say here in verse 19 of Philippians 4. The world believes that there is no God who cares about the sparrow, no God who actually numbers the hairs of your head, or lack thereof for some of us. To the world there is no God. The world stuck in their pursuit, enslaved in their pursuit of more, has no understanding of the one true God of whom the psalmist speaks in Psalm 139, 1-6. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You, have, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path Am I lying down and are acquainted with all my ways, even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. it is high, I cannot attain it. Are you overwhelmed? When you come to passages like that, like the psalmist is overwhelmed with the kind of knowledge that God has about you and your needs. For the believer in Jesus, this is incredibly good news. God knows you and he cares about you. He knows what you need and he has promised to provide what you truly need. He will never leave you or forsake you. But to the world who knows nothing of God, who does not believe in God, who does not trust God, there is no God. And if there is no God, then there is no future, and there is nothing beyond this life on earth. And if there is no God who is preparing a place for you, believer, there's only now. To the unbeliever, there's only now. That ought not be believers. Do not get caught up in the, the only, the, there's only now mentality. This is not to be the way believers in the creator of the universe, the sustainer of the universe, live. This is not how we're to live like the unbelieving world that says there is only Now. So get all you can get. Get out of my way while I get all I can get. Get it now and do whatever it takes to get it now. Live for today. That is not how believers are supposed to live. So the bottom line is that the world at large believes there is no God who cares and graciously provides. And how easy it is for God's people to lose sight of the truth that God is gracious and He does provide. He does care for and provide for His children. He demonstrated it so clearly on Calvary. You need to stop and remember that every time you think about, does God know I need this? Hello, God, help. Oh, He knows what you need. He proved it by sending His Son to the cross. Let's begin there, with our ultimate need being met through the Lord Jesus Christ. Our sins washed away. We are made new. We are new creatures in Christ when we put our faith in the One who gave Himself for our sins. But the world says, it's all about me. This is not to be true of believers in Jesus But I'll tell you, unfortunately, we in the church often look just like the world in our discontentment. We in the church, if we're not training our thinking, if we aren't being deliberate, if we aren't on guard in our own lives If we're not training our thinking with the Word, as we heard Paul say back in verse 8, thinking on whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, those are the things that we're to train our minds with, and they will guard us from discontentment. If we're not consciously thinking about and training our thoughts and desires with these things, then we will be just like the world around us in our discontent. And let me warn you, the world is watching believers to see if we'll be content with the one true God whom we claim to believe in. If you get this wrong, your lack of contentment not only drives you to materialism in wanting new and better and bigger and faster and more, it will also drive your spirituality or lack thereof. And this lack of contentment doesn't stop as it goes far deeper than surface Desires, surface needs, as we call them. You'll show up in your life of purity, purity of the mind, purity of how you live out your physical desires, lusts of the flesh, as the Bible talks about them. But it doesn't stop there. If that's us, then a lack of contentment will also show up in the life of God's church in our midst. And we will begin to shape and make the church according to our own selfish preferences over and against how the Bible instructs us to be the church. Do you see the danger? and how far-reaching discontentment is. So what's the solution to the problem? The Bible strikes a bold contrast about how you're to be dealing with your discontentment. The world and the devil, who often shapes the thinking of unbelievers, will tell you the way to deal with discontentment is to strive to get ahead, to strive for more. But the Bible strikes a very bold contrast to that, in how you as a believer are to deal with your discontent. Listen to the language of the Bible in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5. And if you want deliberate language, here it is, Colossians 3, And verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Why would you do something like that? Why would you put something to death? Because if you don't kill it, it's going to kill you. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And it begins with what we often think of as the worst of sins sexual immorality, impurity, passion. And we're starting to get closer and closer to our surface desires, evil desire, and covetousness, also known as. I mean, all of these could be classified as discontentment. Which is idolatry, says Colossians three five. Put to death, says God's word. Here's how to deal with discontentment. Put to death, therefore. Take seriously your discontentment. And the way a believer in Jesus Christ take seriously their discontentment, is not to pursue more. It's to, pers- it's to put to death that desire. Dealing with fleshly desires. Dealing with our thinking, impurity. So sort of sexual immorality, your fleshly desires, your, your impurity, that's your, your thinking, your passions, what drives you, evil desire and covetousness which is idolatry, put them to death, fellow believer. Take seriously when discontentment shows up in your life. Now let's go back to Philippians 4.11. How do you free yourself from sexual immorality? How do you free yourself from impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness to find contentment instead? I mean, this is so countercultural. Because the world that we live in says, you buffoon, those are the things that drive me. Those are the things that give me more. Why would I want to put them to death? But if you're a believer in Jesus whose spirit lives in you, you ought to want to make your body a temple that's worth the Holy Spirit dwelling in. So we need to take these things seriously and not be like the unbelieving world. Back at Philippians 4.11, again, listen carefully to Paul's words. Not that I am speaking of being in need. For I have learned, key word, learned, in whatever situation I am, to be content. Note that he says he had learned. He hadn't always been content. That tells me that Paul hadn't arrived fully content at birth. (laughs) What baby has, right? And it's a good thing babies aren't content when they're babies, because we need to know when they need things. They can't tell us. But this gives me hope. And it gives me hope for you. That a man whom whom God chose to use greatly as a a pillar of faith and, and righteousness hadn't always been one of faith, or righteous, or even content. This was something the Apostle Paul had to learn also. He hadn't always been content. That encourages me, does this encourage you? To see, people like this in God's Word who said, I have learned. (laughs) A man God used greatly had learned how to be content. How did he learn this? I want to know, Paul. How did you do this? Where did he find contentment? On what was his contentment based? I think that's what we need to know. It all begins, as we saw last week, with Paul's confidence in God. Where's your confidence? Is it in you and your abilities to make the way for yourself and provide for yourself and grow a thing for yourself and achieve more for yourself? Or is it in God who promises to never leave you or forsake you? Paul's confidence is in God. That was his foundation. That's the first, most important part of wisdom that leads to contentment. Is your confidence in God? Are you confident that God is in control? Now, let me get to something here. God is in control, whether you believe it or not. But are you convinced? Do you believe that God is in control? Do you understand that that's what God's Word teaches you? And it's one of the reasons your pastor keeps saying, read your Bible, read your Bible, hide God's Word in your heart, because it will convince you that God is in control. And you need to be convinced. Otherwise, you won't be content. When he says here in verse 11, Not that I am speaking of being in need. Is he in need? you know where he is? Do I need to remind you? He's in prison. He's in chains. No freedom, as we would say. He's, he's not free. He can't do what he wants. He can't go where he goes. He can't even provide for himself. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. What's he doing? He's pointing to God's provision. He's making the point that he's Not making his need the focus of his life. Does he have needs? Yes, he does. But he's refusing to make that the focus of his days, of his life. He's making the point that he's looking to God who promises to provide for his needs. He's not looking at his needs. He's looking at his Savior. How was it that Paul could be satisfied with God's provision as he found himself in prison? Chained. 24-hour guard. No privacy. Prisoner's rations with minimal comforts. How could he not feel justified in pointing out his needs? I think the point here is twofold. First... First, I think he's training believers that instead of focusing on what has been provided to meet a need, to be more focused on the giver of the provision. And he's not talking about the Philippian believers who sent to provide for his needs because they couldn't always provide for his needs. But God always could, and God always did. So I think he's training believers that instead of focusing on what has been given to you, focus on the giver Capital G, giver, God. Focus on the one, capital O, the one who provides to meet all of our needs. That's the Lord. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Verse 10. So we're learning here to focus on the giver, the one who gives, the Lord Not focusing on the gift, not focusing on the thing. That's so hard for us. We're visual, right? We see the provision. Oh, thank you, Lord, for this. Stop. Rejoice in the Lord greatly. Because this will not last if it's an earthly thing. But the Lord remains, and He always provides. And so we're learning here to focus on the giver, the Lord, not the gift. Second, when he says here in verse 11, not that I am speaking of being in need, even when he does have needs, he's more concerned that the Philippian believers know that it's better for them to be givers, to be givers, than it is for him to be dependent on their gifts. He's not depending on their gifts. They couldn't always support him. But when they could give, and they did give, it was good for them that they gave. It was good for them. God moved them to give, and they responded to the need that God had prompted them to help with. And God will bless His children when they are generous with what He entrusts to their care. You realize that everything that you have, God entrusts to you to care for with wisdom. We're going to begin to see this more clearly as we go a little further here in the weeks ahead. But Paul wants these believers to see that they are better off for having given. And that he's better off for having learned not to be be dependent on their gift, but to rejoice greatly in the Lord. So what can we learn from Paul here about our own need of contentment? First of all, you need to learn from Paul that there is more to life than today. The here and now, you know, I want it here and I want it now mentality. There is more to life than today. Paul knew that life wasn't just what he could get out of today. Paul had an eternal perspective. Back in Philippians 1 and verse 21, we heard him say this, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul knew that for his life to continue meant that he had more days to live for God's glory. Do you think that way? As you face each day, another day, here's another day. Thank you, Lord, for another opportunity to bring glory to you. We don't think that way, do we? Not very often. And we need to change our thinking. We need to train our thinking so that we look at every day as an opportunity to bring glory to God with the way that we live. And one of the ways that we do that is when we learn contentment. Paul knew that if he died, he would no longer be here to glorify the Lord. But if he died, that was gain for him because then he would spend all of eternity with God in glory. That's an eternal perspective. So learn that there's more to life than today. And I'm not saying that you're not allowed to enjoy today. I'm looking forward. If the Lord doesn't return this afternoon, which would be okay with all of us, I hope, but if He doesn't, I'm looking forward to a time of fellowship tonight with God's people and some good food and and being out in creation. He does want us to enjoy the good things He has entrusted to us. But He wants us to bring Him glory with them. And that begins with us. When we learn to change our thinking and learn to be content with what God is providing or not providing. Second, you can also learn from Paul that your purpose on earth isn't one of self-fulfillment. That's so against our nature. Because we're all about comforting ourselves, and I would go—I would call myself number one in that. I want to be comfortable. That's why I'm not wearing a suit. I want to be comfortable. How about you? Do you want to be comfortable? I want to be first, not last. I worked in a high-rise building in downtown Columbus for a time when I was younger. And it always amazed me how often I forgot I wasn't the only person in the building. I'd get on the elevator, or I'd try to get on the elevator. When the doors open, I'd try to get on, right? And it's full of people. I was like, oh, wait, I have to wait for everybody to get off first. Every time, every time the doors open, I was like, I wait, I have to back up. There's people on there I have to get off because it's not my elevator. I want to be first. I want to be comfortable. But you and I need to learn that our purpose on earth isn't one, is not one of self-fulfillment. Back in Philippians 3.8, we heard this, that for followers of Christ, life isn't about self-fulfillment or self-gratification. He says, Philippians 3.8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. In comparison to gaining Christ, In comparison to living for God's glory, everything else is garbage, according to Paul. That's a change in perspective, isn't it? Paul knew that the sum of life wasn't in the collecting, the collecting of more things. Knowing Christ more fully is of much greater value than earthly things and accomplishments. And so learn from Paul that your purpose on earth isn't one of self-fulfillment and that glorifying God with your life is the point. Bringing great glory to God and your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that's the point. And then thirdly, you can learn from Paul that whatever the circumstances, it's all a part of God's good purpose. And God has good purposes. All of His ways are just. All of His ways are true and righteous altogether, says God's Word. That's what we heard Paul even saying back in Philippians 1, verses 12 and 13, when he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest, that my imprisonment is for Christ. It's for God's glory, for the Lord's glory, even His imprisonment. Paul is saying, and we need to hear this, Paul is saying God knows what He is doing. (laughs) Don't you think you're going to correct God? God knows what He is doing. Whatever I'm facing, God is in control. He knows what He is doing. Whether it seems good or bad to me, it's good in God's hands. And I'm going to trust Him with that. Is that your attitude today? Are you learning to grow in contentment in that way? Learning that because God has a plan with everything that you face, you can trust Him with that. You can trust Him with every challenge, every heartache, every... Difficulty, everything that you perceive as a need. Believer in Jesus, are you learning to say with Paul from Philippians 4.11, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Are you learning? Maybe you, maybe you can't say, I have learned. Can you say, I'm willing to learn? I hope that's your desire and I hope that desire grows in you to want to honor and glorify God with your life and learn to be content because God is in control and he is at work.